Mean Old Lion Media presents the history of being black. What up, though? Welcome to the History of Being Black podcast. I'm Jay Hall, and today we are talking everyone's favorite subject, money, baby. <laughs> and we have author Tony Jackson, the real money coach, here with us. Good afternoon, sir. Hey, Jay. How, how you doing, man? Thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm good, sir. I'm good. I'm good. Um, I was actually being hella sarcastic because it seems like these days talking money doesn't necessarily bring the smiles that you would necessarily think because it's like, what do you mean? You know, money as in like I owe money, money I'm going to receive money. And it's such a subject that everyone seems to glamorize, but not necessarily want to actually talk about and how it's made. And so you have taken upon yourself to actually dip in that that arena to actually know about it with your book, Increase, Protect, and Dominate Your Money. First of all, I would just want to tell you that title is so commanding. It reminds me of the um, lock song, Money, Power, Respect, like just very simple, but very much so like, boom, boom, increase and dominate your money. Can you just start off like telling me where that title came from? Yeah, absolutely, man. So, so that title really came, I really thought like it was a download from the Lord, right? So, so basically when we talk about increase, that's where most financial advisors kind of focus in on increasing your money because basically the more of your money they manage, the more they make, right? Because they manage your money, they get fees from that and that type of thing. And then in the insurance world, you have people who just all they talk about is protection. You know, you need a policy for this, a policy for that. And so ultimately you have these two financial professionals, very good at what they do, but they operate in their own silos. You know, they don't talk to each other. Truth is, uh, I heard they don't even like each other, right? Because they feel like they're competing for the same amount of money. But what I've understood over being in this field for over 25 years is that if we can both protect our money and increase our money at the same time, now we begin to have dominion, right? Now I'm dominating the conversation around my own money rather than reacting to what's happening on Wall Street or reacting to what's happening at the IRS. Now I'm in control. And so really, that's where that title came from. Uh, it initially started off as a presentation for the Power Networking Conference, and uh, we just kind of warped it and, and then wrote the book with the same title. Yo, that's that's dope, because I, I didn't know any of that. So even from the title itself, I've already felt like I've been kind of enlightened financially because I didn't have, you know, when you're only receiving it as a customer or whatever, right? You kind of think they all know each other and they're all kind of working together in one cubicle. You don't know that this financial field doesn't care for that financial field and, and you know, and they have like a tribal thing going on, but you right. are taking upon yourself to kind of bring those things together. And I also saw in our background, brother, we uh, got a lot in common in the sense that we're both from Michigan. Oh yeah. You're from, you're from Michigan. Michigan. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Detroit. From... Yeah. 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 So yeah, I grew up in Muskegon and, uh, then went to Western Kalamazoo where I met my wife and then lived in Jackson. Uh, and so I did a lot, lot of business in Wayne County, uh, long eight miles, Southfield, all along in there, uh, up in, uh, uh, all, all along that way, man, up in Oakland County as well. And then moved to Charlotte in 2014. Yeah. Yeah. That's what's up, man. Cause you know, I, I only thing I ever knew about going up there is that that was where your family went when they wanted to like leave Detroit and go way up north. Like they didn't want to go past the county or anything. So I mean, for you growing up there in that state with that, what would you say was like your earliest memory of money having this effect? Absolutely, man. So 
my earliest memory of money is because, of course, you know, in Michigan, it's all auto driven. So my dad uh, migrated from Mississippi after getting out of World War II, uh, landed in, in Muskegon, worked in the same factory for 38 years. And my memory of money is back then, man, they got a paycheck on Friday. You went to the paycheck, went to the bank with the paycheck, went in, cashed it, put it in a brown paper bag, brought it home laid it on the table and mama took care of everything from there. That's what, that was my memory of money. And, you know, I never realized we had everything, you know, I, I was blessed, man. And, you know, never really wanted for anything, never, you know, knew of the struggle that mom and dad were going through until it was time for me to go to school. And I wanted to go to Howard. Howard wasn't offering enough money. And mom and dad was like, I can't afford that. So, uh, so that's kind of my first memory of money. Um, and, uh, you know, like many of us, man, when I was growing up that generation, when they started talking about money, that was grown folks business. So you go to your room or whatever, when, when the money conversation started. And so that's what I love about your podcast and, and things like that is that we bring these things out and start talking about them like we should be doing as a community. Yeah. Let's, 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 let's sit on that for a second, because you're right. When it, all I knew about money was just you pay the bills, right? You either had enough right. money to pay the bills or you didn't have enough money to pay the bills. It wasn't a lot of conversation. It was, it was no conversation about what to do with the money. It was just, you make enough money to pay the bills. You might in between be able to buy Snickers, but there was nothing about what money can do, just about what it can do to you if you didn't have it. So for you, when you think, when you said, okay, you realize you couldn't go to a college because originally you wanted to go to Howard, but you know, I went there and I didn't have the money, you know what I'm saying? I still owe now. But when you decided that, okay, man, I can't go somewhere because of money, like literally, what was that process for you in your education when you did choose to go to Western University, Western Michigan well, University? Well, again, you know, fortunately, you know, Western offered me a, a academic scholarship before ride. Uh, so for me, it was going to either be I was going to take that academic scholarship or take one of the football scholarships. Um, and so but, you know, what it what it brought to my attention was that because of money, my choices were limited in some way, um, not from the standpoint of, you know, really bad. But the fact is, I couldn't go to where I wanted to go. Now, ultimately, I ended up in the right place for me. You know, and, and like I said, that's I, where, was where I met my wife. We've been married 30 years and all this kind of stuff. But um, but but it was limited choices. And that's really what we want to do for people is put them in a position where they can make choices, um, not being limited to the choices because of money. And so that's that's really ultimately what our goal is. And that's a that can be eye opening when we realize there's certain things that we can't do because we have the lack of resources. Was that something that you decided to major in in college itself, or did that come along post-college when you went, you know, job seeking? Well, actually, uh, I, I decided to major in accounting, and that was really kind of decided even as a sophomore in, uh, in high school because I like numbers. Um, and so I always had this thing for numbers, and so that's why I decided to major in accounting uh, I didn't want to be a mathematician or anything like that because I still wanted to, you know, be a business person, businessman, uh, what have you. And so I majored in accounting. The the devastating thing about it, Jay, is this, is that 
Uh, I went to Western on an academic scholarship, majored in accounting, had uh, accounting credits done in high school and all this. Uh, but I went through four years of college, getting a degree in accounting and never learned anything about personal finance. And that's the thing that we learned about, you know, balance sheets and, uh, you know, income statements, profit and loss and the business. But we never really learned anything about personal finance. And I was like, wow, we got to do something about this. And uh, I talk about this, man, it's like back then. Uh, I'm, I'm probably a little bit older than you, but back then what happened is when we got on campus, you went to the student union, right? And there it was lined up the credit card company, you know, get you a card, credit card, right? Listen, remember so that. <laughs> I got me a Sears and Robot credit card, a Sears card, man, they gave me a credit limit. I jumped in my little, my little Ford Escort. Drove down the Sears, man. Got the 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 biggest stereo that would fit in that little bitty car. Took it, put it in that dorm room, man. And I, man, that 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 was it, man. And then the bill came. I'm like, what is this, right? Because I, my parents didn't do credit. They didn't have credit cards, right? And so, man, it's it's funny. I talk about the story in the book. It's like five years later. You know, I'm proposing to my wife and I got Luther Vandross playing in the background and all of this on that stereo that I'm still paying for. Right. And so that was my first lessons. Like, wait a minute. There's something about this whole thing is not right. So there it is, man. Here's the thing I, I, I try to explain to people like culturally, because I read that your, your pops worked at the factory for 38 years. And when you talk about the lack of education when it comes to money, you know, that was something that was just a norm even down in Detroit, where we from, like you said, that was what you did. You you got out of high school, you got out of school, and you went to go work at the plant. Right. Or you go find other ways, but the plant was the dominant force of income. But the thing about it is, what I was witnessing is that I'm seeing these men, primarily men, they were women, but primarily men, putting decades into this plant company. But besides them kind of knowing a little bit about a car here and there. There wasn't no conversations about how they can advance in that, you know, in that plant, you know, what they can do with the money that they made and none of that. How much do you feel like that plays a part into our like growing up as 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 black people with that being our source, especially if you come from a certain generation where your parents, they came to Michigan for that. You know, my parents migrated from down south. I mean, my grandparents migrated from down south. That was the story for most of us. But how much does that have an effect on us? Because you even went to college and I'm, I'm pretty sure you were like the champion for your family to go to college because it wasn't a lot of us still going. And then you still don't necessarily learn about money itself. How much do you think that plays a part on us? Man, it's a huge part because, I mean, and you know this from growing up in the, in the Midwest, Michigan, it was just what you said, right? Graduate, get your high school degree, get you a good job with benefits. Right. And if you get in the factory, man, you'd have made it. You work for GM. Right. And so you and, and three. You know, <laughs> you know, the, the best thing about that was, you know, if you were if you had someone there that maybe could tell you a little bit about putting into the 401k or whatever. But, you know, that generation grew up, man, working in the factory, gave their life to really that work and came out with maybe a pension and social security. 
And that's the situation with my dad. Matter of fact, my dad actually uh, came out of the factory on workers' comp because his lungs were so messed up from working in the factory, right? So all of that plays a part in it, especially, I think, up north where, I don't know about you, but for me, uh, I only knew about two HM, or HBCUs, and that was Howard and Morehouse, right? And, and, you know, so I think for us up north, it was almost a different mentality. Um, it was like that, that sharecropper mentality that we just moved up north. What, you know, they always say you can take, bring the man out of the south, but you can't bring the south out of the man. And, and so that was the mentality that we grew up around. And then you got to think about, okay, in Muskegon, it was, it was factories. They were suppliers for the big three. And then I moved from there and I moved to, to Jackson. And if you're from Michigan, if you grew up in Michigan, Jackson was known for one thing. And that was the going prison. to visit your uncle in prison. <laughs> <laughs> and so you have this mentality that that's there that we need to break. And that's a big reason, man, why we decided to move to the South is because, you know, my wife and I, we have four kids. They were going to school. They're going to college. And we're looking around us and say, OK, when they get done with school, what happens most of the time if you don't have a job? what happens is you move back home and we're looking around us and saying, okay, what opportunities are there going to be for them here if they move back home? And we said, you know, it's time for us to get up out of here. And so we packed up uh, like the Beverly Hillbillies man in a U-Haul and came on down to Charlotte and it's been a great move. And you're surrounded by educated uh, black folks, that have many of them have gotten their degrees through HBCUs. It's a different mentality. And matter of fact, even just uh, the other day, I was looking at a study and it talked about the, the I think it was the 20 best cities for um, African-American professionals. They, they were all in the South. And then there was another study looked at the worst cities for black folks. They were all Midwest. And so um, you know, the, the dynamics of all that is, is, you know, it has an impact on us and, and, and in that mindset. So you're, you're, you're married, you come out of college, you're married, you and your wife, you're, you're doing the married thing. You guys are working. Were you still, were you working as an accountant at that point? Were you working in the field? So my, my first career job was in the field. So, I mean, and, you know, we were doing well for, you know, and all that. So I got a job. Um, I was uh, accounting supervisor for an insurance company. Uh, the problem they made, Jay, is they let me supervise the compensation area. So I'm looking at what I'm getting on my paycheck and I'm looking at these agents and I said, I'm sitting on the wrong side of the table. And so I decided to go into agency and ran an agency for 13 years uh, and then decided to go independent. Um, and so that's kind of how my career kind of evolved. But even with that, here, here's the scary thing. As a business owner, as an agent, that company and most of them in 25 years I've been doing this, uh, I've never seen an insurance company actually even train their agents on how to be a good business person. You know, they train them on how to take care of the customer, how to make sure they're but they never train you on how, what to do for yourself. And and I think that's important is that we have to stop and say, OK, how does this apply to me? And, you know, my, my wife had to check me, right? Because here I am putting all these great financial plans together for my clients. And she said, dude, what about us? 
you know, what, what's going to happen to me if something happens to you? How am I going to survive? And, you know, and sometimes we do that in our careers is that we do really good of taking care of our customers, but sometimes we ignore our own personal situation. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, all of that is part of the dynamics of this thing. And, and unfortunately, our people have had a, we have an adverse relationship with financial institutions, whether it's banks, insurance companies, and these type of things, and for good reason, right? Because there's a lot of, you heard of redlining. Well, redlining is still going on today. There's a bank in California just got fined uh, $36 billion by the Department of Justice for redlining from nine, from 2017 to, to 2020. I mean, we're not talking about 60s. We're talking about in, within the last decade. And so these things still exist. And so what we're out here doing, man, is trying to break down those barriers so that we can realize that there's some things that we could do in financial services to close this wealth gap that is growing. And I, I'm particularly concerned because the Institute of Policy Studies put out a study here recently what well, wasn't recent was like 2016, but a lot of people are talking about it now that in the year 2053, three decades from now, that the median household wealth of a black family will be zero. In, at the yeah, I, I, I saw that. I saw that that was in there and I, I, I really wanted to touch on that because what I saw in your bio was something that it, it affected me reading it because it happens so often in black families where you talked about, unfortunately, your mother's passing. But not only were you dealing with your mother's passing, but then you this whole door opened up about knowing the financial situation where none of the multiple insurance companies, I think you said five, six of them would cover the funeral. Six of them would cover the funeral. Like that experience of us when we find out things through tragedy often. Can you expound on that? What was that like for you? I mean, you're working in finances at this point or whatever, and then you, you're dealing with this and you find out this door. What's that process like? Well, so so I was working for an insurance company in the accounting department, didn't know anything about it, right? Just uh, I hadn't had any ex personal experience with any type of insurance, life insurance, that type of thing. You know, the normal car stuff, but not life insurance. And so as we were, and, and some people think it's, it's kind of funny, but the funeral home in Muskegon, Michigan was was Toombs Funeral Home. And and the guy was named Mr. Toombs. I'm like, okay, how do, how do you be named Mr. Toombs and go into the funeral business? But you know, there it is. So so we're in Mr. Toombs office and we find this out that six policies are not gonna pay. And you know, some of the stuff that she was buying, the JC Penny policy, the Montgomery Ward policy, things that were coming in the mail. And a lot of those things were accidental death and she died of natural causes. So there's no there's no payout. And so, you know, this to me, that's, that was the critical moment for me. I was working in the, in the county and that's like, well, wait, wait a minute. If my parents worked hard all their life, built a house, um, we were so-called middle-class folks, right? If my parents didn't know what they had, how many of more people out there are just like them that look like us and just don't know? And that kind of thing is still happening even today because you got to think about it. You know, one of the, the seminars that we do that's, that's kind of popular is one that is called GoFundMe Ain't Life Insurance, right? And so 
you know, that's that's devastating stuff, man. And and there's studies that support that. New York Times said this. New York Times said in the African American community, it is ten times more likely for someone to own insurance on their cell phone than they do on their own life. Yeah, I, I definitely pay for Apple Care. Yeah, that is Apple. true. Yeah, me too. Right, especially right. When kids, <laughs> little kids are little. They come up with that crack screen. Like, come on, bro. Yeah, yeah. I definitely pay for Apple Care. I mean, that resonated with me because of my my personal life, my personal journey. But I think about the black community as in the grand scheme. When I think about uh, Black Wall Street, when I think about um, the Haiti community, North Carolina, um, North Carolina, the Jackson Ward, which was called the Harlem of the South in Richmond, Virginia. Mm-hmm. They were all like these tragedies. Right. There are these areas of blackness where we were thriving or these particular areas where blackness was thriving. And then, boom, there's a tragedy because of race. There's a tragedy because of economic things that's going on that's beyond our control or just natural causes in that. And it's, it all kind of relates in that, in that, in that, you know. But it's also hard to try to be proactive in the, in the financial conversation with certain parents because there are certain parents, they're very proud. You know, mm-hmm. and when you try to show opportunities or, or things like that, they're, they're very resistant to it or not even so much as your parents, the, the people around you, you know, in that when you first start doing that, when you had that shift that you talk about and your wife checked you, and you had all these things. What was the challenge of trying to take what you know and try to spread that amongst at least the people that you know first? Well, you know, man, the, the, the I always I, I joke about this It's like when I became an insurance agent. I lost half my friends, you know, they didn't want to talk to me no more. Right. So back then we had pagers, I'm paging people. They won't, they won't call me back, you know, and because we don't want to have that conversation. And, and some of it is, you know, some of it is self-inflicted by the industry. Um, but I, I think the thing that we have not realized is in particular, if we're talking life insurance in particular is that it is an asset. And it is a way to create generational wealth for pennies on a dollar. Uh, Eugene Mitchell wrote a great book is called Closing the Racial Wealth Gap. Uh, he was with New York Life at the time and did a really big project of having 50 million uh, uh, assets of $50 million transferring. And basically, we can use life insurance and leverage that. Because even if I don't have a million dollars in the bank, I could buy a million dollar life insurance policy so that when I go, the next generation will get that million dollars. Now, the problem is this, is that we got to teach them what to do with that money. Otherwise, it'll be no different than someone hitting the lottery. And next thing you know, they end up broke. We've seen too many stories of our athletes getting the big paydays. But by the time they retire, you know, they don't have any money because we haven't learned how to manage the money because we have this great distrust of anybody that's talking about money. And there's so many tools out there, Jay, that someone can take advantage of and uh, and really kind of, you know, put themselves in a better position. But I believe this, and even in the book, the first chapter is about financial education, about doing a budget, about getting out of debt, is that we have to start with financial education so that we know what to do with the money when we get it. Because here's the thing about our people throughout history, right? Uh, history of being black, right? That's the podcast we're on. Here's the history. We know how to get dollars. If I need some money, I know how to get my hustle on. 
we're not opposed to working two jobs, three jobs, whatever it takes to survive. But it's not about how much money you make. It's about how much you keep. And Kiyosaki even said this. It's not even about how much you keep. It's about how much you pass to the next generation. And so that's what we're really about. Yeah, let's let's talk about one of those tours because you decided to create a tour with your book, Increase Protect and Dominate Your Money. How did the origins of you saying, I'm going to write a book come about? Well, it, it's kind of one of those things. I'm like like 80% of Americans, right? Many people, many, many, many people say, I'm going to write a book. And I, and I was one of those people, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to write a book. And, you know, and, you know, I'm good at what I do and, and all this kind of stuff. And so I had these notes, these yellow stickies around these different titles for the book and all this. And uh, and actually, my wife was listening to uh, Willie Moore Jr. She's listening to this show and a gentleman came on there, AJ Joyner. And he was talking about helping people write their book. And so I was sitting around talking about, you know, writing a book. And she said, she ought, you ought to give him a call. And so uh, I reached out to AJ. Uh, he was in the process of developing software to do what he did with people in terms of coaching. And he said, I'll take you on. You're going to be my last one. Um, and that's from there. He and I worked together for 10 months and, and produced the book. For me, it was just a matter of saying things in a way that people would understand it. The book, every chapter starts with um, a story. So it's kind of almost like the parable thing, right? So we start with a story that explains what I'm going to talk about in that chapter. And so that was kind of AJ's uh, thought that we should do. And so we did that. So the stories were easy because of being in the business for 25 years. I had plenty of stories that matter, you know, deciding which ones to use and just making it where it's palatable for someone if they don't know anything about money or even if they feel like they got it all together that they could read that book and get something out of it. Yeah. The thing about when I think about money, I, I wrote an article one time and when I was doing my research, I had read in 2002, according to census, black poverty was at 24.1%. And then I read in 2022, which was just last year, black poverty, the rate was 19.5%, but it's still the highest in comparison to other races. And you hear about, you know, they're always talking about the new black billionaires and, you know, Forbes is covering this. And yeah, 19% is lower than 24, but that's 20 years. Yeah. And yet we're still the highest out of, out of everyone. I mean, what's one of the consistent issues that you keep seeing on us where we're still behind? Well, again, I, I think there's a couple of things. One is... Uh... Delayed gratification is one of the things, you know, we, we, we want to look like we're winning and not actually win. Right. So uh, here, here's what I'm saying. It's like one of my mentors, George Frazier says, I'd rather carry a paper bag with 5,000 in it than to carry a $5,000 Louis Vuitton bag with a hundred dollars in it. So, so we have, this can you repeat stack. that please? <laughs> can you repeat that? I'd, I'd rather carry a paper bag with $5,000 in it than to care a $5,000 Louis Vuitton bag with $100 in it. We have status anxiety, right? That's who we are. We want to look good. We want to dress good. We want to we want to look like we're making it. But, but the goal is not to look like we're winning. The goal is to actually win. So I think that's part of it. And I think the other thing, as good as um, desegregation was and all that, it also 
it also hurt us, right? When when you look at this, uh, and then we're coming up on an anniversary, you know, of, of Dr. King's assassination. Um, on that last speech that he gave, you know, we always hear, you know, I've been to the mountaintop and all this. But in that, he was talking about a boycott of, of Coca-Cola, Wonder Bread, and some other things. But one of the things that he mentioned in that particular speech that before, earlier in it, is that if you took all of the, the African-American dollars in America and you consolidated that, we would be, from a uh, GDP standpoint, we would be the eighth largest nation in the world. Okay, we would be like right before Canada if you took all the black dollars in America. I'm not talking about the diaspora, just in America. And the thing about it is that was in 1968. If you look at it today, we still would be in that same spot of number eight. We haven't moved the needle because we're not doing enough business with each other so that we can circulate the dollars within our own community, creating wealth. And other communities are doing that. And I think that's part of it is that we have to be very intentional about supporting black businesses. And we got to like, here, here's the thing that happens. If you take your shirt to a, a black dry cleaner and the dry cleaner messes up your shirt, this is what happens. People say, I ain't, I ain't going to another black dry cleaner. They didn't, they jacked up my shirt. Now, if you take it to the white dry cleaner and they jack your shirt up, you may say this, I ain't going back to that dry cleaner, but you ain't going to say I ain't going to another white dry cleaner. We, we have got to stop um, self-sabotaging ourselves and our businesses. So I think that's very important. And the other, on the other side of it is as a business owner, I got to deliver services. I, I can't, you know, my restaurant, my barbershop or whatever business that I have has to be up to par with everybody else. You know, so I think those are two things that can help us is if we can get that entrepreneur spirit. And I think everybody should have some type of side hustle, side thing, uh, because entrepreneurship is the way to go. I can be a top executive at one of Fortune 500 companies and my son has the same name as I. When I leave, they're not going to give him that job. But if I have a business enterprise, I can leave that to my children and my children's children. Even if they don't choose to work in it, they can still own that bad boy. And that's how we start creating generational wealth. Four pillars, proper management of your money. The second is proper insurance and investments. The third is real estate. And the fourth is business development. If we could operate in those four things, then I think we can create uh, generational wealth that we've been missing. Yo, I, I, you literally had two questions just popped in mind. Let me let me get this one out before I forget. You brought up how desegregation also helped us. I, I've been struggling with that ever since I kind of heard, you know, people say that, like desegregation kind of hurt us, this, this, and this. As from a financial perspective, can you expound a little bit more on how it actually hurt us in the Black community when desegregation took an effect? You know, from an economic standpoint, this is what happened. From an economic standpoint, uh, there used to be things even called, and I got one of them from like 19, I don't know, 1950. Green, it was a, this thing called the Green Book. This is an example. The Green Book. And you can get the Green Book. I ordered a copy of the Green Book. I got the 1950 edition or something like that. And it had all of the black restaurants, it had all of the black places that was safe for us to stay. Black owned business. So when we traveled, where did we go? We went to those restaurants 
We went to those hotels. We went to those places that were safe, that would accept our dollars. And so what we were doing is really supporting our own black community. That's why we had the black Wall Streets, not just in Tulsa, Oklahoma, not just in Richmond, Virginia, but all over, all, all over the, the, the country. We had these black Wall Streets because we were supporting each other. And so back, black businesses were thriving. Even in Tulsa, the black businesses were doing better than, than the white business. That, I mean, and so we know that they burned it down for some bogus type of stuff. But, you know, Wall Street was rebuilt. But what happened to it? What happened to the second Wall Street? It's the fact that we desegregated. So now what happens is things that have been held from us, once we can get it, we want it. So I wasn't able to go into uh, a Caucasian-owned store. I wasn't able to go into this place and spend my money. And now I can. So what's the first thing I want to do? I'm going to go stay at the White Hotel, right? I'm going to go stay at the... I'm going to go eat at the white restaurant where I have not been allowed to do that prior. And so we become, we were like, because it was held back from us, now we want it. The other thing that they recognize is this. The other thing that happened is that the non-Black owned businesses says, wait a minute, hold up. We, we've been missing on some dollars. We didn't allow Black people in our stores. We didn't allow Black people in our restaurants. All of a sudden, we realized they like to spend a lot of money. And so then they started their marketing towards us. There's communities, man, that that's their marketing plan. I'm going to put my nail shop in the middle of the hood. <laughs> I'm going to do whatever because they know we spend money. And so when desegregations happened, so not only did we stop supporting each other's businesses, but now we have people outside of our community that comes into our community and says, hey, listen, there's a lot of dollars we can make here. Take that money and go back to our own, to back to the suburbs. Yeah, see, I you you know what you hit on a nail. I, my struggle with it when I hear that example, I'm like, you're absolutely right. You know, and and the facts show it. I do struggle with what you just mentioned because there's a part of me that's like, yeah, but we built this joint for free. I should be entitled to those things that were kept from me, right? Like, mm. I, I also feel like there's a bigger piece of the pie that we pay the debt for. In that sense. But I also understand the other part of it. So that's why I'm always kind of in the medium of it, especially, you know, when it comes to education. So thank you um, for bringing down that dollar. But the other part you kind of helped me with this next question is the marketing point, because not only did they market it, business market that, OK, cool, we're going to put the nail shop right in the hood. And you're right. There was an Ace Hardware in my hood. My hood was not a safe hood. And there was an Ace Hardware with some Batman in the hood. So you are right about that. And we kept that boy alive. But the other thing that they marketed was the quality of blackness, that blackness meant like lower quality. And let's just use you, for example, right? Online, I'm always seeing some friend sharing something that a, a white financial, quote unquote, guru is saying all the time. And they're trusting it. Like, I mean, they don't even know the individual. And they're like, yo, blah, blah, blah. And they are willing, they, they taking this person's word by, you know, by Bible, right? But then there's something about when a black person comes across with credentials you can find online, like credentials like Western Michigan is a school, like you did this for 20 something years. And there seems to be a feeling of doubt with that. You know, has that been something that you have like dealt with yourself or you, you at least witnessed? Man, witnessed, dealt with, lived there, done that, and all of it. Let me tell you something, man. It's that whole, 
I, the white man's ice is colder mentality that we have in our community that we need to get rid of. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you an example. I, I, I met with this guy, man, and this used to happen all the time, um, but it would be unsaid. This guy was just honest with me. So I sit down, I laid out a plan for him that was was awesome. Awesome plan, did everything he needed for him, think about it, all this kind of stuff. And I went back to him, follow up, and he says, I, I actually bought it from this other guy. Had to be a white guy. And I said, this is the exact same plan that I, I, I laid out for you. And he said, the reason I bought it for him is because he's white. And I said, huh? He said, because I figured that there's probably something that the company knows that they're telling him because he's white, that they're not telling you because you're black. And that's why I went with him. What kind of messed up uh, mentality wow. is that? But we have that mentality in our, in, our, in our community, man, where the white man's ice is colder. Now, here's the thing that I, I'm proud to say, though. I'm proud to say this. And some of it could be because I've spent almost the last decade in the South. I don't know. But I do think that some of that is starting to change. Some of the tides of some of that is starting to change. But I, I would be frustrated for years, man, just, you know, just laying out these plans, doing these things. And then my people, my, my brothers and sisters would go to, the, to other uh, institutions and buy these things. Same thing that I'm offering. They'd come to me and get all the education. But when it was time to pull the trigger, they pull it with someone else. And that was frustrating. I, I spent years frustrated by that type of thing. I do think the ties of that is changing. And I think part of it is changing because we're starting to recognize that, that we have professionals that are just as good or better than our, our white counterparts or our Asian counterparts or whoever, or our Jewish counterparts. That's the one thing I hear all the time. Well, my Jewish friends, this, my Jewish, you know, we, we have people that are just as good. The other thing I think is that we as a people, there's more of us that have more than we've had in the past, right? Because as we see this baby boomer generation, you know, people born between 1946, 1964, that went to college, got great jobs, and they're accumulating some assets. So there's more of us with more assets than what we used to have. So I think that also helps. But I, I think we're turning the tide on that. I don't think that we're nearly where we should be. But in my 25 years of doing this, I have seen some change, some movement of the needle in that area. Yeah, I mean, that's why I jumped at the chance of having a conversation with you, because, listen, I, I'm somebody I feel like I've, I've been snaked by everyone, you know, so I, it's, I don't necessarily look at it as like, OK, with well, this person, this and this person, that. And what you said earlier was so profound, because I, I one thing I used to hear my grandmother used to say during the segregated times, they had a lot more grace. So, for example, if they were going to buy, you know, going to the cleaners, you know, and the machine was broken, then the tool man would come help that machine being broken. They didn't necessarily have the attitude of, well, we're just not going to come back to this cleaners, you know, right. or because you're a black cleaner, you're, you know, you're broke. And I, I had a friend who had a, a shirt company. And whenever his shirts wouldn't show up on time, that would be the main thing that they'll type under his business was, this is why I'm dealing with black businesses and this and this. And there was never no understanding, but you don't get mad when Walmart run out of shirts. You know, right. <laughs> like Walmart run out of shirts all the time. Yeah, we you don't get angry with that. Yeah. yeah, you know what I'm saying? And you, and you never get angry with that. So I, I definitely think that grace um, 
you know, needs to come in. But let, let's let's tackle something that you brought up earlier. That I want to return to when you said, um, and I saw it written down too, so I know what you was getting at. When you say, "quote Black people will have zero medium household wealth by 2053, and even the Latin community by 2073," how can you explain how how can that be a real thing? Not something because that's not that long from here when you really think about it. Because I'm a kid, and I remember when the year 2000 seemed so far, and now we in 2020-something, right? So right. how is that possible, and how can it be prevented? Right. Because when you think about it, that's three decades from now. I mean, and I graduated three decades ago from, from, from college. I mean, I graduated in December of 1990. So in my lifetime, you're saying that the that study by the Institute of Policy Studies says that I'm going to, that, that our median, now the other thing we have to understand that the play on words here too, is we're talking about median income. That's the middle. That's not the average. That's different. So that's the median income, but nonetheless, I mean, that's, 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 man, that's startling to think that, um, you know, they also said this, it said that for us to close the wealth gap, it would take us 288 years to close the wealth gap. Um, with white American and I think the Hispanic, uh, it would take like, you know, 90 years to close it. So, and then when we think about it in correlation, well, we spent 400 years in slavery. I mean, we just- 400 plus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, and then we had how many years of, of Jim Crow and et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, there's a lot of ways that we are way behind in playing catch up. No, I, I think the important thing for us to say when we see studies like that, it ought to be thriving us. It ought to be pushing us and saying, listen, I'm not going to let this happen on my watch. Uh, whatever it takes to do. And one of the things that we're going to start an initiative, we're going to call it the Saving Money Initiative, where we can help at least a thousand people every year save at least a hundred dollars a month. I mean, if you could do that and you do that over the same time period, you'll be way above zero. Right. I mean, you'll have hundreds of thousands of dollars. And if you do something simple as put it in a Roth, you'll also be able to pull that money out income tax free just with $100 a month. And so we have to start thinking of it and we got to change from being a consumer mentality to being a saver mentality. Right. And so that's where, you know, we need all hands on deck. Everyone, myself, you know, the Boyce Watkins of the world, the the, you know, Dennis Kimbrough's, the George Frazier's, et cetera, et cetera. All, we need all hands on deck to say we're not going to allow this to happen. It's not going to happen on our watch. And so um, that's that's kind of my feelings on, on that whole thing. Um, and we can turn that tide. I mean, but it happens one family at a time, right? One one family, one person at a time making up their mind and say, listen, I'm not going to allow this. To, I'm not going to let this be my family legacy. Because we all going to leave a legacy and it's just a matter of what that legacy is going to be. You know, when I speak a lot of times I talk about, you know, you know, the song, man, Papa was a rolling stone. Wherever he laid his hat was his home. And when he died, all he left us was alone. We have to change that narrative, right? We have to change that narrative in our community that we're looking and we want to leave a legacy to the next generation. And especially, you know, talking to my brothers, you know, my brothers, I've heard all kinds of things, man. I, I don't want to make nobody rich when I die and da, 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 da. Listen, bro, you got to change that mentality so that we can get our people 
from starting in the basement to starting on the third floor. You know, we got to raise, we got to raise the the level up of where our family even start, and 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 even in home ownership. And look at home ownership in the black community. Home ownership is somewhere around forty some percent, where in the white community it's up over seventy. And for most people, that's where the bulk of their wealth lies is in their home. And then what has happened is that you know. We allow regenification to come in and we get a little $50,000, $100,000 check for grandma's house because, you know, we ain't paying the taxes no way. And now they go and build a $600,000 home in there and we mad. We got to hang on to our property. And it's like, hey, if you want to build a house, I'll lease the land to you, but I ain't going to sell it to you. I'll lease it to you. You want to build on a piece of leased land? Cool. Um, so we got to we got to look at all of those things and say, you know, we got to raise our financial IQ and realize and not fall for the open door. You know, I, I I really want, you know, our listeners to know that you, you are, you're the real deal. This is what you do. So, you know, we, we got to do a little exercise be, before, you know, we exit, if, if we could, please, because I want to I, I want them to know that this is what you do, you know, because I think that's very important. And so. One of the first things that I, I come to understand, like when you brought up grandma's house, I, I was a grandma house baby. When I went to college, my grandma left me, uh, left left that house. But man, we were in so much debt that everything and the neighborhood around, I mean, the houses worth like so many dollars. And then on top of that, they broke into the house and they stole the, the metal, which left the house to be worth $23.89. This is not even a joke. I'm not even exaggerating because the metal got taken out of it, right? When people are talking about investments, you know, the point of investments is to somehow, you know, get that back. But a lot of times people are broke now. Like they are in a dire situation like right now. What's one of the first things that you advise for people, the first exercise or action you advise to kind of that first step that they can take you know, in that, even when they're in a quote unquote, in, you know, crisis mode? Well, you know, um, that's a, that's a very good point because, you know, when you're in crisis mode, you, you oftentimes you make decisions that are not good for you long-term. This is what wealthy people do. Wealthy people, what they do is they, they acquire assets. They don't buy any less than we do. They don't own any less than we do most of the time. Right. But what they do is they have assets to buy the things that they want. So, for example, um, and, I, and I guess, you know, my point in this is that we need to look at the assets we have and talk to someone, uh, uh, you know, a mortgage broker or someone of how we can take that asset and turn the asset into income. So, like, what would happen with us, for example, let's just say I, I got 50 grand, right? I'll go pay cash. What happens in our community? I'll go pay cash for a car. Man, I got 50 grand. I'm going to buy cash for the car. I ain't going to have no payment. And we proud of that, right? We good. Man, I, I paid cash for this car, bro. Now, what happens with rich people, what they'll do is like, oh, I'm going to take this 50,000 and I'm going to invest it in the money that I make from the investment. I'm going to use that to pay the car payment. So then when the car wears out and I need another car, I still got my asset that's going to buy the next car. 
And because I have an asset that is buying my stuff, I can continue to buy stuff and it doesn't hurt me financially. Where we go out and pay cash for the car and then the car depreciated, ain't running no more. You know, the eight track don't work no more or whatever the case may be. Now we got to go in debt to replace that car where they just took that money and they bought an asset to buy the car. And so that's what we have to start understanding is how to use assets to buy our stuff rather than paying using our assets and buying the stuff with the asset. Now, there are certain people who may uh, who may be too proud. So I'm going to say it for them. Right. Break it down to me in the simplest form. Like I'm in elementary. What is around my house? that may be possible, that may be an asset. And I don't realize it's an asset because I've also discovered that that's part of the challenge P, uh, ch- challenge also. People don't people be sitting on assets, like you said, and they don't even know that's an asset. So what's something that you've seen or you know for a fact that a person can take that and do what you just did, what you just well, explained? You mentioned, first of it, it's the house itself and, you know, how to get the wealth out of the walls of the house. You know, that's the first thing is the house is the asset. That's the first one. And, and the first thing that came to my mind when you said that our greatest asset is our ability to go out and earn money. And so, you know, taking our time, talent and treasure and using that to create income. We're good at something. Everything that we need is in the house. Everything that we need is in the house. I often talk about a uh, story out of the Bible, um, uh, 2 Kings 4 and 7, where the widow and, it, and then the, the, the prophet told her to go get all the oil, right? And start selling the oil. Everything that we need is in the house. All we need is within our walls. We just have to discover what's there, what's our hobbies, what things that we're good at. And if it's, if it's knitting a sweater, then sell a sweater on Spotify, sell it on, on an eBay. So whatever talents you have, turn those talents and passions into a profit. My co-host on my show, Michelle Mitchell, Mitchell Consulting, that's her tagline, turning your passion into profit. And so what that's, I think, is our greatest asset is whatever passion we have is to then turn that into a profit. Tell us a little bit more about the Real Money Coach University. So Real Money Coach University, Real Money Coach University is uh, an online uh, portal uh, where we have 10 different modules, 175 different lessons. Everything. The first one is financial psychology, right? Because first you got to deal with the mindset. And so that's the first one. So financial psychology, uh, then we go to savings budget all the way down through personal financing. And so it is an online portal that we offer. Uh, matter of fact, we are kicking off uh, on February 27th, um, a seven week um, financial literacy. I call it financial intelligence class. Um, because the difference between financial literacy and financial education is is financial intelligence means I put the work to action, to put what I'm learning into action. So, um, so and it's based on the on the Real Money Coach University. So it's a self paced self study, um, but it, it has everything in it, all that you could ever want to know about you know managing your money. That's dope. I, I appreciate that. Can you let people know how we can follow you and you know, besides real money coach, like what's your socials, anything like that? Because I'm about to start hitting you all up too. But <laughs> everybody know how how we can like, you know, follow your, your, your path and how we can help also too. Well, um, absolutely. So it's at the real money coach. Um, 
on Instagram, LinkedIn, Tony Jackson Senior on Facebook is my social media uh, handles. I, I do want to say if someone's interested in enrolling in that master class for financial education, it's just trmcmasterclass.com to register. It's absolutely free. Um, no charge at all for the master class. And so that's a great place to enroll. How you can help, man, is is I would say just get this book in your hand, read it, apply it, um, share it with others. And if I could do this, uh, of course, the book is available on Amazon. I also offer it on my website uh, for about 25% less. But for your listeners, if they go to ipadyourmoney.com and order the book and use this discount code, IPAD, all caps, 50, they'll get the book for $10. And that will include shipping and handling everything. So um, that'd be great, man. The more people to get the information and spread it, the better. Do you have plans of writing like books in the future? I mean, I know that might be, I know, I know, I know it took a whole lot to, to get this. I'm trying, I'm trying to be respectful, but do you have plans to, to, to make another book in, in the future or anything like that? Well, man, it's interesting. You say that I was, uh, I was doing a masterclass on the book last night, actually. And, and the topic did come up because we're approaching the one year anniversary of the release of the book, which was on my birthday, February 22nd, which is, um, you know, uh, right here. Um, and so, uh, yeah, there'll be another book. It'll be another book. I don't know when, but there'll be another book and um, probably leaning even more towards financial literacy. Uh, there's some other things that I'm, I'm working on. It's a program, Disc and Dollars, where we're taking actually a person's disc profile and seeing how that relates to how they handle money. You know, if I'm, if I'm an S or my I, those type of things. So, so there's another book coming. We'll, we'll see where the download comes and we'll get writing. But yeah, there'll be another book. I'm sure even with that, you're going to continue doing the work because we, we just need the information. I, I, I saw one time Diddy said that on the shop. He was like the biggest difference. One of the main difference between us and them, quote unquote, is the information. And so, you know, I, I know and I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. And happy board day to you, too. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to be able to say that these days. And I, I just, you know, I gladly appreciate everything that you have when it comes to that. Um, thank you very much for coming through because. You know, money is such a conversation that can be very challenging when it comes to us in our community. We can be so guarded. So thank you for individuals like yourself that's actually taking that time to get that information. And I would like to extend the invitation because um, when you come on the show the first time, hey, listen, it's an introduction. But please feel free to reach out if you say, listen, Jay, this is something we need to talk about. You know, reach out to our people so you can come back on here because we need this ongoing conversation about money. Um, I personally need it. But I know everyone else also needed also too. So please feel free to come back and join us. Yeah, I, I appreciate that invitation. And, and perhaps when we really launch this Saving Money Challenge, we'll come back and, and, and talk about even that in some greater detail. So I appreciate you, man. And, and thank you for what you're doing because it, it's people like you um, that is getting these podcasts out that, that people are listening to. Uh, we got to have a way to get it out there, man. So you're, you're part of that solution by distributing the information that you're doing. So love it. History of being black, man, that, that name, you talking about my book. I can <laughs> that right there, man. When I saw that, I was like, yeah, I'm there, man. I, I'm, I'm, I'm on that podcast for sure. 
that's that's all credit to um, the producers who started this before I came on board. But that was the reason why I jumped on board. You know, when I saw the title, I was like, of course, because it's just so much in that, you know. And I often feel like people like to have there's been this conversation lately of when you say black in front and people don't want to be pigeonholed, you know, artists. There's been a lot of conversation on that. And for me, I get frustrated with the idea that blackness tends to be a limitation. And I like to look at blackness as an invitation, you know, I mean, to that broader scale of everything in America. So I like people who are not afraid to have that conversation because we should not be running for them because my skin is who I am. And yes, I do have to mention that this is my experience and blackness is a part of the American experience. So I I, I definitely appreciate you coming on there saying that. Well, you know, man, it's, it's my thing is, is we're black first, not black only. Right. So black first, not black only. And, and, you know, even this was the same conversation, man, we were having in 1990 when I graduated from college, they were saying that we shouldn't, we were members of the National Association of Black Accountants. You shouldn't have that on your resume because they're going to know you black when you send your resume. I said, well, you know what? When I walk into the interview, they going to know. So if they don't want to hire me because I'm black, don't waste my time having me come, you know? So that's always been my attitude. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, I'm okay. I'm 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 okay. You know what I'm saying? God bless you on your journey, but I'm I'm okay. You know, I'm okay. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you, Tony Jackson. We appreciate you coming on here. Make sure you go out there and support and get the book Increase, Protect, and Dominate Your Money. Dominate your money. I'm gonna start saying that in my affirmations when I meditate in the morning, like dominate, you know, my money, because that's a that's a real big thing. Much appreciate you coming on here. That's been an episode of the History of Being Black. You can always hit us up on our IG, History of Being Black. You can also hit up Mean O'Lion. This episode and the episodes like it was before, you can always catch us on all the platforms, Spotify, Apple, and all the other ones. I'm always forgetting to mention every single time, but you know who you can go to get your podcast. You can hit me up on all my social medias as usual at Hall Society. Be blessed and successful and talk to you soon. The History of Being Black is hosted by Jay Hall, executive producer Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your podcast. Find the History of Being Black podcast on IG at The History of Being Black. Follow the Mean O'Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O'Line Media. Get the Mean O'Line Media app in the App Store or on Google Play. The History of Being Black podcast is a Mean O'Line Media production.